Welcome everyone to the demand side. I'm your host Edward Brown. On today's episode we're talking about U.S. fiscal policy and how persistent fiscal mismanagement by our leaders threatens the future of the American economy. Here to discuss is our very special guest, Bill Gale. Bill is a senior fellow in the Economic Studies program at the Brookings Institution, where he focuses on fiscal policy, tax policy, and savings behavior. He is also the co-director of the Tax Policy Center, a joint venture of the Brookings Institution and the Urban Institute. Bill has written extensively in policy-related publications, including op-eds for CNN, The Financial Times, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post. And he's the author of a terrific book that we will be discussing quite a bit today, Fiscal Therapy, Curing America's Debt Addiction and Investing in the Future. Prior to joining Brookings in 1992, he was an assistant economics professor at UCLA, and he also served as a senior economist in President George H.W. Bush's Council of Economic Advisors. Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Bill, we're, we're, we're happy to have you on the show. Today, we, we are largely going to be discussing your book, Fiscal Therapy, uh, a book I encourage all of our listeners uh, to go out and get a copy of. But before we get into the weeds, why don't we have you walk through uh, what you believe to be the central problem um, of the U.S. fiscal system and, and why you decided uh, to write Fiscal Therapy? Sure. Uh, the central problem is uh, has two sides to it. it. One is the rising long-term debt profile. And I'm not talking about right now. I'm talking about 20, 30 years from now, the, the path we're headed on. And the other side of the coin, if you will, is the way we're generating that debt. That is the way we're choosing uh, spending policies and tax policies. And uh, you can imagine debt buildups that are not problematic, for example, if they are financing uh, investment, uh, but that's not what our debt buildup is doing. Our debt buildup is financing uh, transfer payments. And so uh, the issue is not just the rising debt, but the structure and level of, of taxes and spending policy. Uh, why I chose to write a book about this is essentially because the problem is multifaceted and uh, I wanted to put it all together in one place for people to think about. Yeah. You know, I think uh, what seems to to me to, to be most of the problem uh, with our, our current uh, you know, fiscal predicament is you know, the, the, it seems that Americans increasingly want more from government, yet we don't want to pay for it. Uh, there's there, there's a high demand for popular programs like Social Security, um, but raising taxes to maintain its solvency is is anathema to most voters. And and despite what those on the the political right like to say about you know our tax burden. We, we have substantially lower taxes uh, than, than other uh, advanced economies. Payroll taxes are, are twice as large in other G7 countries. So isn't the first thing we need to do um, is, is to get Americans to start paying for the things they want from government? I think that's a very good way to put it. The way I put it in the book is that it's not just a tax problem, not that taxes... 
uh, are too low. And it's not just a spending issue. It's not that spending is too high. It's the combination uh, of the two. It's like the two sides of the scissors uh, are both needed to do the cutting. And uh, uh, so there are many ways to resolve the issue, lower spending, uh, higher taxes. Uh, but it's the imbalance between the two, as you pointed out, that is driving uh, the issue. The other thing you mentioned is our taxes are low relative to other countries. And that's definitely the case, uh, especially, uh, you know, consumption or sales taxes, uh, payroll taxes and uh, energy taxes uh, are much lower uh, in the U.S. than in European countries, other advanced countries. Yeah, you know, um multiple times in your book that our our current fiscal problem can't be solved simply by uh, cutting defense uh, spending, uh, nor can we grow our way out of this problem. Um, what growth rate would we need to maintain fiscal sustainability uh, with our current rate of spending? And, and why is uh, trying to achieve greater growth, not what we need to be focused on. Uh, so the growth rate we would need given current spending uh, would astronomical. I, I'm not sure exactly, but something like five or six or 7% per year uh, GDP growth, real GDP growth. Uh, historically, we've had 3% and uh, uh, now we're looking at actually less than that. Uh, because uh, of the population growth, is, it won't be as large as as, as it used to be. Uh, so, uh, better, more growth is a good thing, uh, other things equal, uh, but it's not going to get us out of the fiscal dilemma, uh, both because uh, realistically, we're not going to get anywhere near five, six, seven percent uh, on a sustained basis. There's no historical precedent for that. Uh, but the other reason that people don't, don't notice this in the budget, that if the growth rate goes up, there's more demand for investment. So interest rates go up. Uh, the government borrows money, it pays a lot in net interest. So if interest rates go up, that makes the budget situation worse. Uh, if, if likewise, if we have a lot of growth, wages go up. Right. Well, that raises future Social Security benefits and that makes the budget uh, situation more difficult as well. So there are these automatic uh, mechanisms that curtail the benefits of growth uh, on the fiscal situation. So growth is good, but it's not just appealing to more growth uh, is not going to solve the long term uh, fiscal uh, situation. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, yeah, I just feel like we've we've sort of allowed old age spending to run rampant while investing in our future uh, in, in revenue positive projects has sort of been culled at, at every turn. Um, you know, it seems we've become a, a country that borrows to spend rather than borrowing to invest. But having said this, isn't the the high level of savings coupled with our low interest rate environment telling us that we aren't spending enough? I mean, it, you know, just as as lending creates deposits, government spending does create tax revenues. 
why why shouldn't we take advantage of historically low borrowing costs, create a fifty year treasury, and at least you know try to grow our way out of the problem? You know, you know, you say we can't grow out of this, and 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 I believe you, but you know there there are there are things that need to be done. Uh, you know, projects that ha have high economic multipliers like infrastructure and and, and early age spending. Um, you know, programs that essentially pay for pay for themselves. So, uh, what what do you say to that? I think we should do those things. Uh, I there's a distinction between the short term situation and the long term situation. Uh, and when I say growth alone won't solve uh, the budget problem it doesn't mean that growth is not worthwhile i mean there are i agree completely there are uh uh important and productive investments the government can make in uh in physical infrastructure but e e even more so in in humans uh in early age uh, invest uh, childhood health care etc uh that could that could reap substantial economic benefits and i i don't want to I don't want to rule out any of those. I think those are good ideas. Uh, I think uh, also uh, uh, borrowing long right now uh, to take advantage of low rates, I think on balance is a good idea uh, and uh, we should pursue more of it. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, we, we really should really should take advantage of, of, of of what the the market's given us, Bill. I, I I wish everyone would read your book because it's it's so enlightening. It's so right on on so many things. But I think I think the one area, perhaps where you and I would would disagree, uh, is on defense spending. Uh, you mentioned in your book that defense uh, constitutes a relatively low share of uh, federal spending around. Uh, you know, fifteen percent of of the budget. Um, I don't necessarily think fifteen percent is a low number. Um, we, you know, when we when we spend more than the next ten countries combined on defense, it it seems quite substantial. Um, so, so my question for you is: with you know, one in six children living in poverty, um, and 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 with all the other you know G seven countries spending twice as much on. Uh, social assistance for families and children. Why shouldn't we cut defense spending and increase our, our our you know money geared towards social assistance? But but even if we didn't um, increase fam you know transfers to families, why won't cutting the defense budget um, alleviate our the budget predicament that we're in? All right, this is a this is a great question. I have several uh, components to the answer. Uh, the most important one is I am not a defense expert, uh, and so uh, I was inherently leery of saying, "Oh, just cut this thing that I don't know that much about, and, and uh, everything will be fine." Uh, obviously, there are defense and national security concerns that don't show up uh, in in the usual budget criteria that we look at. And so I didn't want to just sort of claim, uh, oh, there's nothing here, just take a uh, and, and uh, uh, cut the spending. Uh, I w let me say a couple more things about defense spending there. One is it's fallen from about 10% of GDP to center GDP over several decades since World War II. 
And uh, that has helped finance a big increase uh, in domestic spending. But that's been done. You can't do that again. Even if you cut defense from three to zero, uh, 3% of GDP to zero, you would not cover projected increase in healthcare spending alone of 30 years. So uh, I'm sure there are ways to cut the defense budget, uh, but I'm not expert enough to know what they are. And the point is just defense has been the source of defense cutting the source of spending cuts for like the second half of the 20th century. Uh, and we just can't do that anymore. There's not, there's just not enough in the defense budget to finance the projected increases uh, in other spending. Right. And there's, yeah, there's a real risk to, to doing that. So, um, you know, let's get into some specifics on uh, social, social security, and then we'll, then we'll move on to healthcare. Um, you know that social security accounts for 23% of federal spending, uh, with Medicare being 14%, Medicaid nine, defense 15, and uh, everything else 29, uh, with around 16% of that 29 being investments. Uh, in other words, you know, spending in education, social services, science, uh, transportation, infrastructure, etc. Why have we allowed, why do you think we've allowed the proportion of actual investment to continue trending downward and social security spending, a, a program that was not designed for 30 years of shuffleboard uh, to, to engulf so much of, of federal outlays? You know, social security was designed for a select few elderly and disabled, not the masses, um, you know, at its inception, uh, which is which is why I very much like the the proposal in your book of of raising the retirement age uh, gradually to to sixty nine. But don't we have to go beyond sixty nine? And, and and you know, are there some other things besides raising the retirement age uh, that we can do to keep Social Security solvent? Yeah, Social Security started out as a relatively narrow program, uh, and then it has uh, it was expanded in pretty much a bipartisan way numerous times over decades uh, to the point where it's near universal now. Uh, almost, I think almost all workers, except some state and local government workers, uh, are in the Social Security system. So I, I think that's probably here to stay, uh, and it, it's you know it's the most I think it's probably the most popular government program. It's one of the most successful uh, ones. Uh, and I think uh, it does need reform, though, and raising retirement age uh, can and should be part of that, as I proposed. Uh, it's important, though, to note that people, some people are in jobs or have health conditions where they can't work to age 69. And uh, so it's important to provide protections for them as the retirement age rises. And the book goes through uh, some ways to do that. I just want to highlight that uh, that group needs to have their needs addressed as, as we seriously bring the Social Security reforms uh, system in, into balance. Uh, there's a number of ways to do that. Uh, I don't think the public is going to support benefit cuts. Uh, and um, 
Uh, I actually, at this point, I don't think when it comes around, when push comes to shove, I don't think Congress is going to raise Social Security taxes or cut Social benefits. I think they're going to borrow money to cover the Social Security shortfall. And uh, that would be unprecedented. The same low interest rates that we discussed earlier that make investments so profitable uh, uh, or productive for government uh, uh, spending uh, also make it uh, less costly to borrow to uh, finance social security shortfalls. Yeah. So you, you think that they'll, they'll probably start or they'll, they'll have to start pulling money from uh, the general fund to cover social security? Well, around by around uh, 2033 or 2035, I don't remember the exact date, uh, they will have to do something. They'll either have to cut benefits or raise payroll taxes or use general revenues. Uh, historically, they've not used general revenues on a sustained basis. There's some emergency uses. Uh, uh, Social Security is always is generally financed with its own taxes. Uh, and that's how that's how Roosevelt wanted it, because he thought that once the taxes were in place, uh, uh, in his words, no petition uh, can take away the benefits. Uh, but I don't see, you know, if interest rates are low and and the consensus becomes that uh, deficits are not harmful, uh, I don't see how Congress uh, will muster up the the courage to raise taxes or cut social security or, or, or cut benefits for social security. I mean, it's 15 years away, so we'll see, but uh, <laughs> it would be good for them to do something sooner, but I doubt, I doubt that they will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about healthcare. Um, you note in your book that um, we are in this fiscal predicament largely because of our healthcare system um, you said, uh, we like to think that we have the world's best healthcare system, and in some ways we do, but too many people lack health insurance, which impairs their health and cause ec causes economic hardship. Also, our costs are too high. Healthcare spending has been rising for several decades, and counting both public and private outlays, we spend far more than any other country with little difference in health outcomes. So I have I have two questions uh, for you on the on, on the future of healthcare. Uh, first, being, do you think that uh, our new president can uh, a new president, President Biden, can can find a way to get more people covered um, under uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, and, and second? what can we do about costs? I mean, you know, in, in what world does a, a general physician deserve $218,000 a year on average? You know, doctors like to say they, they have hard jobs, but, uh, and, 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 you know, and they, they aren't overpaid because they are paid what the market can bear. But, you know, what they don't realize is that the, the U S government is the market, a large part of the market. And, current and future taxpayers are, are the ones writing their checks. So, um, so, so what, what do you say to this? Uh, healthcare is, I think, the single most complicated area of policy, uh, certainly the most complicated area of 
policy that I've looked, I've looked at. I've used to think taxes were complicated, but here is is crazy. Uh, I think you you highlight a really important point, which is about half the people in the country get their health care from the government. Uh, so the notion that the private market is is you know doing its thing here uh, is has to be severely curtailed. Uh, the government in general and Medicare in particular uh, are market leaders uh, in terms of setting uh, compensation rates, setting uh, definitions of appropriate treatment and stuff like that. And uh, I think the government needs uh, to take more advantage uh, of this. Uh, for example, Medicare is not allowed to negotiate on the price of the drugs that it covers, right? Estimates suggest that doing so would let it save a half a trillion dollars over the next 10 years. Uh, uh, so that's something that that government Medicare pays more than Medicaid or VA, for example, pay for the same pharmaceuticals. Uh, so there are ways to uh, to to cut costs. Uh, and Obamacare and people think about the pre-existing uh, the prohibition of denial of coverage based on pre-existing conditions. They think about the insurance mandate. Uh, the mandate to purchase insurance. But one of the big things that Obamacare did that doesn't get talked about a lot was that in, it encouraged uh, numerous uh, research and uh, medical practice experiments uh, to learn more about what works uh, and how costs can be contained. And those ongoing, uh, I think it's fair to say the general result is there's some evidence of places to cut costs, but it but it's not as easy as uh, some of the uh, proponents might have thought. But this is going to be an ongoing uh, process. Tax reform, you know, you change the tax system and you're done. Healthcare, uh, it's going to be going to be a, a process of continual adjustments, and uh, I'm not quite sure that I have the answer. Uh, healthcare was the one chapter where I felt like the proposals I put forward made a dent in the system, uh, but didn't really resolve the underlying conflicts uh, in the healthcare system. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can see that it's 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 an area that that uh, you know they're they're continually moving parts that 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 can, are going to present problems, especially you know with our with our aging population, but. Um, let's, let's move on, uh, to discuss, you know, the national debt a little bit more, uh, concretely. Um, you know, that the big issue of the national debt is that we have to pay interest, interest that can pull money away from productive government programs, interest that, uh, to some degree, uh, is paid to foreigners rather than our own citizens and an interest that is always a function of the prevailing interest rate environment. You know, if a country only borrowed from its citizens, interest, you know, really wouldn't matter. The right hand would be paying interest to the left hand for the left hand's investment in the right hand. You know, we, we in essence, interest would just be a reward for citizens investing in their, their future selves. But that isn't the world we live in, um, as the, you know, the global community relies quite heavily on our, our current account deficit 
Um, we have we have you know a situation where interest is paid globally, and you know that takes takes away from you know money being invested at home. But having said all of this, is your real concern that our growing debt um, creates a situation where money is being sent to other countries um, and 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 not being sent uh, spent at home, or is it that a, a higher debt to GDP? And thus, larger uh, interest payments are a threat to economic growth. What What did the data tell us about debt to GDP and, and long term growth rates? And and can we be sure that there is in fact a a, a causal relationship between the two? Uh, let's talk about history versus now. Uh, in terms of history, there's a big layer that suggests that concludes that since reduced growth, they long-term they reduce investment rate, uh, they raise interest rates, they raise interest rates. Uh, so the, the kind of theory of deficits crowding out other investments uh, is supported in a lot of different uh, ways, and there's a there's a big literature uh, on this. Uh, what's not clear is how all that literature applies when interest rates are zero or close to zero uh, as they are now. So right now, in terms of the short-term situation, we should stimulate uh, because interest, interest payments are low. They're not really a concern. We have this opportunity uh, to improve the economy. We should take it. Uh, in the long, longer run, uh, if interest rates stay low, uh, uh, you know, we can run up a lot more debt than, than we previously thought we could. Uh, we just don't know what's going to happen to interest rates in 10 or 20 or 30 years. Right now, the market, market projections are suggesting that interest rates are going to stay relatively low uh, for a fairly lengthy period of time. Uh, uh, other projections, uh, like the Congressional Budget Office, suggest a rise. Uh, I just, you know, I don't know the answer. Nobody does. Uh, but the path of interest uh, will be crucial uh, to determining how bad the long-term debt problem actually turns out to be. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty tough to, to, to guess how, how interest rates are going to. Are going to go over the next, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, but you know, let's uh, talking about growth. I think I think two of the biggest misconceptions are that uh, high taxes limit growth, and that tax cuts pay for themselves through higher growth and increased tax revenues. Um, when we look at the the periods where the U.S. grew the fastest. It's, it's during periods of high taxation and large government spending. And when we look at the, the years following large tax cuts, uh, deficits you know, increased significantly. And, and the, the, the reduced tax rates had little impact on, on economic growth. So you know, for those out there who are trying to you know, wrap their head around this, uh, shouldn't the lesson be that Tax cuts certainly don't pay for themselves, one, um, but that some spending programs actually do and that, you know, tax increases really only stifle economic growth when there aren't 
corresponding increases in government spending. Um, what is your take? Uh, I think the uh, concerns about the level of taxes and growth uh, that we hear continually from conservatives, I think those concerns are greatly overstated. And let me give you just two examples. Uh, in the U.S., before World War I, total taxes were about 3% of P. Between the wars, they were about 10% of GDP. Since the wars, they've been about 20% uh, of GDP. This is uh, federal taxes. Uh, the per capita rate in those periods has been almost identical. Uh, despite taxes going up from 3 GDP to 20% of GDP. Uh, so that across country evidence is basically the same. The OECD countries have taxes, total taxes that are about a third higher than the U.S., uh, but their per capita growth rate since 1970 has been basically the same as the U.S. And so, so these um, uh, concerns that if we raise tax rates a little bit or we impose a new tax, we're going to destroy the economy, uh, I think are just wrong and uh, have been, you know, proven wrong by the evidence. Yeah, yeah. Well, regardless, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that uh, we have a, a real revenue problem. And, and what I loved most about your book um, was that you propose a, a value-added tax of that to, to help us raise revenue. Um, consumption is where the money is. It's two-thirds of our economy. And, and taxing consumption is something... Uh, in my opinion, the U.S. should have adopted long ago. So can you talk a little bit about why the U.S. doesn't have a VAT, um, your proposal for a VAT, and, and, and how we can make this rather regressive tax uh, more progressive? Uh, sure. So a VAT is just a consumption tax. It's like a retail sales tax, but it's collected in a little bit in each stage of production rather than all at once uh, at the retail level. Uh, why we don't have it is a really interesting lesson in politics. Uh, Larry Summers, more than 30 years ago, said we don't have it because uh, liberals think it's regressive uh, and conservatives think it's a money machine that would generate cash to increase the size of government. And he said, we will get a VAT essentially when uh, liberals realize it's a money machine and conservatives realize it's regressive. And uh, uh, I thought that, that I don't think you can get a better description of the politics of the VAT in the United States. But it's, it's very strange because uh, VATs have been proposed in different forms by a variety of conservative Republicans. Uh, Paul Ryan, Herman Cain, uh, uh, Ted Cruz, uh, others, they, they don't call them that because that's have this image as this instrument of European socialism. Uh, so they call them business transfer taxes or, or something like that. But they're basically value added taxes. And uh, uh, so everybody likes the structure of the VAT. Uh, and, you know, taxing consumption is efficient and fair and simpler uh, than taxing income. Uh, but uh, but no conservative will get on board with something called a VAT because European countries have that and 
they are supposedly the, you know, these havens of uh, big government and lazy workers, which is not accurate, but that's the, the stereotype. Uh, well, what I proposed to do was have a value-added tax, uh, which is somewhat regressive, but not to stop there, because whether a policy is regressive depends on not only just on the money that's raised, but how the money is spent. And I proposed in various ways of spending it, one of which was a universal basic income. And uh, if you do that, if you spend about a third of the VAT on universal basic income, you can offset the cost of the tax in among the middle class, and you're essentially greatly subsidizing uh, the bottom 40% of the income distribution. It, it makes the net effect uh, quite concentrated uh, among high-income households. So uh, uh, it's an important lesson that uh, the re we, we may come back to this later, but most of the redistribution among government policies uh, occurs on the spending side not the tax side. So if with a little with a little tinkering on the tax side, you can make a, a VAT, a policy that subsidizes low-income households and concentrates taxes on high-income households. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, it, it, I think it can be a great tool, and especially if we can use it in a progressive way, it would be, it would be wonderful because, um, you know, we, we certainly have a, an inequality problem here in this country. So, I think I, 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 you know, I want to talk about inequality a little bit. I think a, another concept that many U.S. citizens fail to grasp is that uh, taxes are not just used to raise government government revenue. They they are also our, our conduit to determining what level of inequality we would like to see reflected in society. You know, I think that the destruction of wealth at the top is is just as important as the creation of wealth at the bottom, and and most of that is done through the tax code. Um, you know, you you said in in your book that when you consider taxes and transfers, the the U.S. has has less redistribution than than other advanced countries, ranking ranking twenty seventh, I think, in in OECD countries out of thirty. And high-income households have experienced skyrocketing income over the last 40 years, yet you know, they've seen their, their effective tax rates go down. So when you, when you look at these statistics, it, it's pretty clear that we have legislated inequality into our economic system. Um, what, is, what is your view on the trajectory of American inequality and, and the tax code's direct impact on it. So let's start with inequality. Um, some people say that concerns about inequality are just driven by uh, envy. Uh, I think that's wrong. Uh, inequality generates uh, outcomes that are patently unfair uh, to a wide swath of the population. And they're inefficient. They're, they're wasted uh, opportunities for society to uh, uh, benefit from the talents and the, and the work of, of others. So uh, it's being both inefficient and unfair uh, makes inequality uh, uh, a particular target for policy. Uh, a particular aspect of inequality is that it breeds future inequality. Now, kids that grow up in poor 
areas don't get access to good schools. That means they get less high quality education. That means they're qualified for less high quality jobs, et cetera. Uh, and so it gets perpetuated that that way. So I think I think we need to take a much stronger stand on these issues, uh, safety net issues and uh, early childhood issues. Uh, uh, one of the interesting things in the, that I learned in writing the book was that the take up rate for programs like uh, TANF, Temporary Aid Assistance to Needy Families and food stamps and uh, low energy subsidies, the take up rate for these programs is less than 25% of eligible households. So if we could just get the programs to people that are eligible for them, we could do an enormous amount of good. Uh, and in the in the book, what I tried to do was clear out one percent of GDP uh, for the for spending uh, on these types of initiatives. Uh, and I just think it's crucial, uh, especially right now with uh, the very unequal effects of COVID across uh, race and income groups. Uh, it's crucial that we that we do more and do a lot more. Uh, as far as taxes on the top, uh, I think there are ways we can raise taxes on high income households that are not going to wreck the economy uh, uh, and that can generate resources that we can use uh, to help low and moderate income households. Yeah, for sure. You know, what's what's interesting about, um, you know, everything we've talked today and uh, the, the the problems that we outline and, and you know, what we need to do to get the, the country back on a, a stable fiscal path so that we can, you know, do more about it, do more, um, you know, address inequality in, in a more reasonable way and, you know, fix our healthcare system and save Social Security is that a lot of this can be solved by closing the tax gap. Um, can you talk a little bit about the tax gap? Um, you know, some of the things that we could do to close it. And, you know, even if we could make filing simple, simpler by collecting more revenue, um, by just having the IRS file our taxes for us. Uh, yeah, the, the tax gap is one of the infuriating aspects of public policy. There's about 500, $600 billion a year that Americans owe in taxes, the federal taxes that they don't pay. And uh, most of that is uh, because they simply don't report the income uh, to the government. And most of it is uh, among high income households. Uh, and it's related to the structure of the tax system. When taxes are withheld by a third party and reported to the government, the evasion rate's almost zero. So for example, your wages get taxes withheld by your employer, the employer sends it, sends the taxes to the government, you know, and then when it's time to file your income tax, you, you reconcile uh, those things. But the evasion rate on wages is less than 1%. Uh, in contrast, when there's no information reporting and no withholding, uh, the invasion, evasion rates are estimated over 50%, sometimes as high as two thirds. And this is like, uh, uh, farm income or rental income or uh, a lot of pass-through businesses that are just simply not reporting the income and then hence not paying what they owe. And this is an enormous amount of money. It's uh, 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 $600 billion a year is 3% of GDP uh, that, that we're never going to collect all of it, but we could collect a lot more of it 
basically by increasing uh, the information reporting in the system and by increasing IRS uh, enforcement capabilities. The IRS uh, budget and personnel has been gutted over the last 25 years and audit rates are way down and uh, uh, nat quite naturally that makes it easier to evade uh, taxes. So uh, as, as an aside, the IRS computer systems need to be updated too. They're, uh, some of them should be in museums, not, not in offices. <laughs> and but this is a big challenge. And, and um, I think there is money out there, significant money that we can raise. Uh, various people have made proposals recently that they think could raise a trillion dollars uh, over the next 10 years by closing uh, a minority of the tax gap. Uh, uh, going after all of it, of course, would be very expensive. Just like if you have police, it doesn't mean there's no crime, but it cuts down on the amount of it. Uh, in the same way, better enforcement uh, would reduce evasion, but it would never eliminate all of it. Right. Yeah. It isn't providing more funding to the the IRS like the 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 most revenue positive project ever. I mean, I, I you know I wonder what the multiple is for more more tax enforcement. I mean, it just seems like you know the, the IRS is already underfunded, but you know there's just so much money that we have we have really left on the table. Well, that's right. The multiples are on the range of between four and eleven. That is, uh, minimum estimates are you get four dollars extra revenue. For every dollar spent on enforcement, and the high end of the estimate is 11. Uh, but it's important to recognize that those are only the direct effects of the enforcement. That's only the money that they actually collect from the cases that they review. Uh, if it were made known that the IRS was cracking down on enforcement, you might get a lot of other people kind of voluntarily reporting more income that they that they quote forgot unquote in the past. Uh, and so you might raise the overall compliance rate that way and get revenue that's even more multiples of the original uh, change in enforcement costs. Wow, wow. Well, uh, Bill, my, my last question for you today is about politics. Um, almost, almost everything we've, we've discussed today is, is is doable it's it's easy to get done yet in our in our political environment it seems like an impossible feat to get both parties together to to work these things out what do you say to the the policymakers on the hill that have the power to implement some of your solutions but have failed to what, what what's your message to them uh, so one of the messages of the book was that we could solve this problem with policies that are a, a set of policies that are, are realistic, that are administrable, that exist in various places. Uh, and so there are no radical uh, proposals in the book. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the political constraints, uh, you know, are enormously difficult. I, I think I'm as cynical about the political system as anybody. Um, uh, I guess the way I think about it is they, they, they don't address issues when they need to address issues. They need to, they address issues when they have to address issues, when their back is against the wall. Right. Uh, and the problem with the debt is there's no back against the wall 
moment. Uh, there are manufactured back against the wall moment, like expiring tax cuts or debt limit increases, but they're not real. Uh, uh, they're not real do it, do or die situations. And so um, I, I think it's going to, even under the best of circumstances, uh, it would be hard to address these issues. I mean, the, the founding fathers made it difficult on purpose to enact big changes in government. Uh, and so uh, even on the best of circumstances, as I said, it'll be hard. But in the current situation where there's uh, seemingly little respect uh, for facts or for the other side, uh, I think it's going to be uh, particularly difficult. I will say the one shred of optimism I will leave. I will. I will leave with you here is that um, just because it's impossible now doesn't mean it'll be impossible in the future. And so people say, well, there's no solution right now. And that's right. That just means that whatever the solution ultimately is, it'll be something that right now people think is impossible. Right. So uh, impossible things do happen sometimes eventually. And uh, uh, I, I should add too, I don't think this is going to get resolved in one big package deal. Right. I think that's just uh, way too, uh, it, it's way too many things going on for Congress to, to, to address all at once. But um, uh, it, I think, so I think it'll happen in sort of a steps of, a series of steps. That was kind of the idea behind physical therapy. You kind of like physical therapy. You need to keep keep working at it. Uh, but um, the other thing I would add is that presidential leadership, White House leadership, is crucial to this effort uh, because uh, the president basically needs to provide you know air cover basically by saying to the country, you know, everyone's going to lose a little, but this is an important issue. And I want your congressman to be working on this and reaching a constructive solution. Uh, Congress is, is inherently dominated by local concerns. And um, uh, they, can't, they just can't do this without uh, leadership and protection from the White House. Yeah, true. Well, Bill, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I, I know our listeners and I have have learned very much from you and, and, and we thank you for, for taking the time out of your busy schedule uh, to join us. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk about the book and I, I'm gratified by your interest and uh, I hope people found the conversation interesting. If you want to get more Bill Gale, his book, Fiscal Therapy, is available on the Demand Sides library page. And if you want to access all of Bill's research, visit brookings.edu. That's it for us here at The Demand Side. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion of what happened to fiscal policy with our very special guest, Bill Gale. Make sure to check out all the episodes of The Demand Side on The Demand Side's landing page, wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to visit thedemandside.com for access to opinion pieces, books, news, and videos. Thank you all for joining us this season. We will be back with 10 new episodes starting in April. But before we sign off, I want to give a, a shout out to all the people that have made this possible, the editors of TheDemandSide.com, all of our producers, and a special, special thank you to our executive producer, Ryan Snyder, and his team of video and sound editors. I, I couldn't do this without you. Uh, as always, my friends, if you're forced to choose sides, always choose the demand side. 
Until next time.